Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I'd like to talk to us about something tonight. I've, I've got a burden in my heart for it. I believe I've got a word for our church. Um, I know I'm an aspiring minister because I cut out about five pages of notes. <laughs> so I'm going to try to redo that in about two minutes here and make sure we have a, a bit of an evening left. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, it's, it, it's very interesting what he does. Throughout the Gospels, you'll notice that before he ever preaches salvation, before he ever gets into salvation, mind you, this is the God of salvation, he loves people first. And it, that goes without saying, many of you recognize that, but it, when you look at it, it, it is really remarkable. The way that he spent time with people, he cast demons out of people, the way he healed people, the, the way he just gave of himself. How many of you know that where you spend your time reveals what your heart is or where your treasure is, right? It, where you spend your time reveals what you care for. And it, and it impacted me as I was studying when you look at the time he spent having dinner with, with people, the, the people he was chastised for having dinner with. You can think back to Matthew and how the, the Pharisees would, would, would criticize him and, and question why he would ever associate himself with those people, or, or Zacchaeus, if I'm saying that right, and, and how they, would, they did the same thing. Why would you spend time with these people? And he was chastised for it. But it's because he cared for those people. He, he said in those dinners, he, when they questioned, why would you spend your time here? He said, the whole need not a physician. But he said, he, in other words, he said, you're perfect. I didn't come here for you. I came for the lost. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. He told, Zacchaeus, he told them at Zacchaeus' house. In other words, he, he came for those people that were lost. He came for the sick. And it fascinates me when you look at the story, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, because it, just a little bit while, or when he talks about love your neighbor, right? Let me back up for a second. When he says, they ask him, you know, who is my neighbor? Because he says, what are, what are the most important commandments he's asked? And, and he says in the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says, the three, it's, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, if you look at Matthew's version of the gospel, he says that all of the law and the prophets hang upon those two commandments. If you look at Mark, it says these are the greatest of the commandments. And just a little while later, they ask him again, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And, and, and it's almost, the, you can hear almost the insinuation in the question, who do I have to love? Who am I stuck loving? <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and Jesus being as crafty as he is, and I suppose it's just being God, right? But as crafty as he is, he, he turns the question. He says, imagine, and really what his parable is, it's imagine you are beaten and, and left destitute on the side of the road, left for dead. Who would you accept help from? That's really what the parable says. And, and if it's the Samaritan, whoever you would accept help from, even the Samaritan, why does he use the Samaritan? Because the Samaritans were despised by the Israelites. The, the Samaritans were barely considered people. They, they were of mixed lineage with the Assyrians from the captivity over Israel. And he said, even if you would accept help from that person, that is your neighbor. That's your neighbor. We hear it all the time. People talk about love your neighbor. 
What I want to present to you tonight from the Word of God with the help of the Holy Ghost is before you can ever love your neighbor, you have to love your brother. Love your brother. I'm going to start in John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. We can remain seated. I'm just going to get right into it. This is my text for this evening. It says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Just two verses Focus on 35 where I draw my thought. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. I'll give you the context. He's, he's stating this at the Last Supper. It's, it's essentially a departing message. Leaving them with this thought. If you have love one for another, people will know that you are my disciples. People will know who you are. The only way to reach the world is to reach it the way Jesus did, to love people first, to care for them, to give them of your time, to, to be considerate for their, their needs and, and, their, and their, the place they are, the difficulty they're in. It's the only way to reach this world. But how can we possibly reach this world until we have loved one for another? How can we possibly let, let anyone see the love of Jesus unless there's love one for another? Before they realize there's a void in their heart and in their soul, they've got to witness the love that they're missing. They've got to witness there's something different about these people. They've got to see the love one for another. First Timothy 5, 1 through 2 says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Again, context. Paul's writing to Timothy. He's explaining how do you treat your brothers and sisters in the church? How do you treat other believers one to another? How should we behave towards each other? Let me say this, and I've said this before, but I'll say it every chance I get. There's nothing like the church. There is nothing like the family of God. There is nothing like breaking bread and fellowshipping with people that love the same God you do, that, that want the right thing for you, that encourage you. Praise God. There's nothing like the church. I, I ran into Fran Schindler at Home Depot a few nights ago. I almost gave him a bear hug, right? There's, there's nothing like the church. Nothing like people that pick you up when you're down that bring more meals than your family could possibly eat in the moment of tragedy. <laughs> Nothing like the church that picks you up. That take, I, I'll never forget this. I, I used to work for a, a gentleman when I worked in restaurants when I was in high school and college, and he, they, were, they were Nazarenes for a while, and I don't know much about the Nazarenes, but I guess they're pretty devout people. Maybe they'll get the whole truth someday. But he, he always said it, it astonished me when we, we were part of the Nazarene church that these people would give up their entire Saturday. They would give up their entire day off to help other people, to help people move from house to house. It, it amazed him, the love that they had one for another. That makes an impact on people, right? That, cha that changes people's perspective. They, they got to see that there's a love that exists in this world that exists nowhere else. The world spit them up. It chewed them up and spit them out. It's left them for dead. The devil, you know, he puts these stumbling blocks to condemn you or, or to trick you and tempt you into, into sin and destruction. And then he leaves you there. There's something different in the church. Mark chapter 3 and verse 32 through 35 says this. It says, and the multitude sat about him and they said unto him, behold, 
thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them, which sat about him and said, behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoever the family of God is, is my sister and my brother and my mother. You need the body. You need the body. The Bible says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And we don't have to get into that, but let me just leave it at this. There was a reason Saul didn't end his life living for God. He got into the counsel of the ungodly. We just talked about this in youth class a few weeks ago. When you get into the counsel of the ungodly, and there's a lot of Bible behind it, it, it tears you down. Your focus is not on the things of God. It's not on pleasing God. It's not on delighting yourself in the law of God. It's on doing whatever the world wants, what pleases you, what entertains you. It drags you down and it influences you. You gotta be careful who you spend all your time with. Parents love to say that. You are who you spend your time with. They gotta remember it sometimes too, right? You need the counsel of the godly. Where two or more are gathered There he is in the midst of them. I need the body so that there can be a Holy Ghost outpouring. I need the body so that we can have anointed worship services. I need the body so we can have awesome church. I need the body. Iron sharpens iron. I need the body so that they can help better my relationship with God, so they can encourage me, so they can lift me up, so that they can, they can correct me when I get off the path that I'm supposed to be on. I need, I need the body to sharpen me. I need the body to hold me accountable. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. You need someone to lift you up. The body's got to become the good Samaritan for each other. I think we've gotten away from this in some ways. Body's got to lift each other up. You don't let your brother or sister suffer alone. When you know someone's grieving or someone's hurting and they're in their, in their worst moment, we got to go to those people. They've got to be loved in that moment by their family, by their brother and their sister. Exhort one another, as the word says. Encourage people in their moment of weakness. You ever, you ever been weary? <laughs> you ever been weak? You ever barely dragged yourself to church on a Wednesday night? Exhort one another. How, how encouraging is it? How encouraging is it to have a compliment? You ever, you ever realize that when somebody compliments you unexpectedly, your day is made for like three days. Right? How amazing is it when the family of God compliments you? I so appreciate all the Sister Todd and Sister Livingston. They're so encouraging after I speak. It keeps, you, it keeps you coming back. It keeps you encouraged. All the text messages keeps me coming back up here and trying again, right? It, it's so encouraging to be exhorted by the family of God. We got to get back to going house to house and continuing the breaking of bread. I, I, I work with a gentleman that actually pastors a very small church and he calls it the Acts 2 church. His name's Eric, so I'll call him Eric. Eric pastors this, the Acts 2 church. And I, one day I finally just asked, what part of Acts 2 are you talking about? Because, <laughs> right? well, well, I'll leave it at that. 
I didn't think it was Acts 2.38, I'll put it that way. <laughs> so what part of Acts 2 are you talking about? If I remember correctly, maybe I should have looked it up. Acts 2 and 42, I believe is what he said. And they continued house to house. <laughs> I said, man, you missed on something a little bit before that. <laughs> but I, as I was thinking about this last night in preparing, I, I said, you know, I think we missed something. I think, I think we miss that sometimes. I think we miss something Eric does. We don't continue house to house. Right? We're, not, we're not spending time. We, we need unity in the body. Here, let me give you the punchline early. We need unity in the body before there can ever be revival. Before there can ever be a revival in our church and in our city, there has got to be unity. There has got to be people having love one for another because the world is gonna see you are the disciples of Jesus when there's love one for another. Gotta be unity. The world comes to your church, how do they see you treat each other? You ever think about that? It's so difficult sometimes to put your mind back to the place of, of being brand new in an apostolic church. But how does the body, or how does the world see you behave? If there's strife and there's bitterness, why would they ever stay? How would they feel the love and the hope that they so desperately need if we can't walk past each other in the hallway? We, oh, I gotta turn back in the bathroom. Right? I can't see that person. If, we, if we, can't, we can't even sit next to each other, I gotta sit on the opposite side of the church as so-and-so because well, you don't know what they said about me. You don't know what they said about my family and I'm gonna be offended. <laughs> the people that need the forgiveness of God are the lost, the people that this world has, has gotten a hold of, that the enemy has, has shackled in bondage and captivity of sin, the people that so desperately need the, the magnificent power of the blood. How will they ever see the power of the blood, if we can't forgive each other. There will be conflict. There will be tension. There's, there's disagreements in a family. Everyone knows that. But when that leads to contention and bitterness, when that, when that festers and ferments in your heart, when the sun goes down on your wrath, that's sin. And I'm not here to talk tonight about what, how to handle that, and, but the Bible's very specific about don't even come to the altar. The Bible says don't even bring your gifts to the altar. Don't even bring your praise and your worship to the altar. Don't bring your sacrifices until you've made it right with your brother, until you've made it right. And that, that goes for if you have ought against someone or if someone's got ought against you and you know it. Oh, it's not comfortable. It's not comfortable in here right now. It's not comfortable, but it's the, it's the word of God. And it's the will of God for the body. There'll be disagreements. But we cannot get to that point where you can't walk by people. Because then it continues. It's not just in the hallway. You're sitting across the church because you've got to do that. And, well, how are they worshiping? How fake is that? And then it ruins your worship. And then it causes you to talk with other people about that. And then it spreads. And, then, and it just continues and continues. And here's the devil's favorite way to do it. It's offenses. Favorite way to do it. Brother Kylie says that too. People get offended. Their pride gets hurt. The devil loves to use that. I'll give you the perfect example of how to handle that. Genesis 13 and 5. A familiar story of Lot and Abraham. And it says in verse 5 through 12, And Lot also 
which went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Let me translate. You're my brother. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves one from one, the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. Abraham had every right to be offended. You look further back in Genesis, when God calls Abram into the, the, the land that he has set aside for him, he calls him into Canaan. He, he lets Lot his, you know, Snot-nosed nephew, tag along with him. You can can come along, I guess, right? Everything that Lot has is because of Abraham. Everything that he has. He's got wealth, he's got animals, he's got everything because Lot helped him with it. I didn't know, I don't know how it works back in in Genesis, but maybe he showed him the ropes or he gave him a sheep loan and, you know, to get started, right? He He just, he got him going. Everything he had was taught by his uncle Abraham, everything. How selfish of him to even let there be a strife that started. It's different context, I get that. But can you, can you be Abraham for a second in, in the pride that can well up so easily in your heart? In the bitterness that can well up so easily? What right does Lot possibly have to, to even cause a conflict with me when I've given him everything he has? What right does he have to even have his animals graze on my grass? What right does he possibly have to cause a strife with my herdsmen. But Abraham didn't care about any of that, and he said it for us. He said, because you're my brother. And I already said it. There's nothing more important than the unity of brethren. And he decided in his heart that he was not going to let the enemy come between them. He could have had aught, but he, he swallowed his pride. He said, I'm not going to let conflict arise. I'm not going to let strife have its way. I'm not going to let the enemy cause a problem between us. And we need to decide in the same way here tonight that there is no conflict. There is no strife. There is no issue that is worth coming between me and my brother or me and my sister. There is no, I don't care what happens to my pride. I don't care what happens to my land. I don't care what happens to my possessions. I don't, care, I don't care what happens to my self-esteem. There is just nothing that is more important than the unity of brethren. There's nothing that should come between us. Nothing. That's my brother. Let there be no strife. And if you read the chapter carefully, you'll notice there was not a strife between Abram and Lot. It was just the herdsmen. 
But he, but he heads that off as soon as he hears about it because he's not going to let disunity take its place. He got ahead of it. A lot of wisdom in that. A house divided against itself cannot stand. If I let strife come between you and me, or you and you, I let it into the church. You let strife in with your brother, you you let contention persist with somebody else, you let that continue into the church. Like I said, it spread. You gotta tell somebody about how your feelings have been hurt and can you believe so-and-so? That just continued and it festered and it goes to that person and then they go, I can't believe what I heard about them. It continues. Notice in verse seven, going back to my original text, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land. In other words, the world's watching. Abram says, Lot, we're going to make this right because the rest of the world's watching and they're not saved and they don't know God and they cannot see you and me have this problem between each other or they're not going to know where the love of Jesus is. They're not going to know that we're disciples of God. They're not going to know where they can run to when they've had enough of this world. The world's watching. The world gets worse and worse. Where's the world going to turn? Where's the revival going to happen? In the churches of unity. David had a lot of right to be offended as a youth. When you look at his story, and I'll summarize, but when Samuel comes to his house to anoint the next king, he's an afterthought. He's left in the field. We We don't think about that so much because of the amazing life of King David and his legacy, but He's not even invited. Like, did his dad disown him? You know, like, where, is that, where does that happen? But, but he's an afterthought. And, and then after he's anointed king, his, his dad instructs him to take the food and the, and the, you know, the nourishment to his brothers in battle. And they chastise him again. Of course, you're here to watch the battle. You know, you, you, they call him, he has naughtiness of heart. You're just here to see the action. They chastise him when he brings him a gift. There's some dysfunction in Jesse's house. The Bible doesn't get specific, but there's some dysfunction as far as why they basically disown their youngest brother. But here's what's fascinating. If you read in 1 Samuel 22, when he goes on the run from Saul and he's hidden out in the caves of Adalom, his brothers and his dad find out he's there. And what does the Bible say? It's not, it's not very prolific or, or loud but it says they go to those caves. It says his brothers, in spite of all the dysfunction, in spite of the hatred that might have existed, in spite of the animosity, it says when they're, when they're brothers hiding out for his life in the cave, they went to him. And they, sta- they stood beside him. You're not going to like every single person in the church. You're not going to like everybody. And if the church keeps growing and keeps getting bigger, you're not going to like every single person but you've got to love each other. You've got to stand up and go to the cave where your brother and sister is hurting and they're trapped by their enemy and they're fighting for their lives. You've got to go to the caves. You've got to love people where they are. You've got to t- just decide the enemy is not going to take my brother. I'm not willing that they're going to, it's going to take one of their kids. I'm not willing that the adversary is going to get a hold of them. I'm just not willing to let it happen, at least not until I do something. Even David's brothers loved their brother. 
read about Nehemiah for tonight, and a lot of you know the story of Nehemiah. It's a fascinating one. He's tasked with overseeing the reconstruction of the walls surrounding Jericho, and his method is very unique, and they, they rebuild the walls around Jericho in record time, 52 days it takes them to rebuild the entire wall around the city, which is unheard of. And his method is to have every single person, every homeowner, every, every person that's got a, a property reconstruct the wall that's in front of their home. I've got my section to build, you've got your section to build. And we just take care of that and we're going to be just fine. In chapter 3 of Nehemiah, it lists all the people. I mean, it just goes on and on. That, you know, so-and-so built his wall and so-and-so built their wall and they, they built it in front of their house. What a perfect example of the church. Of, or, or an example of what the church is supposed to be. Everybody fitly joined together. We all have a wall in front of our homes to build. We, we all have a wall or a responsibility. And I just don't believe that the wall surrounding Jericho was, was exactly the same height. It was the same terrain in every place. In other words, sometimes it's harder. Some people's wall section was probably a little bit more difficult. Some people's was probably a little bit fancier. It was on a higher place that was more visible. Some people's wall, you get, this, you get the metaphor, right? Some people's ministry is a little bit more visible. Some people's work is a bit more challenging and they've got to bear a bigger burden. But everybody built their section of the wall. We all have a responsibility, a calling, a purpose in the body. I'm sorry, I'll just, I'm just going to say this and... Take me off the schedule. <laughs> Nobody's supposed to sit in the pew. That's not your only responsibility. I don't care how old you are. I don't, right? I don't care how long you've been around this. Everyone's got a calling and a purpose. And no, <laughs> praise God. <laughs> Amen. We've all got a purpose. And let me say this, the only way it works, the only way it works is to trust each other to do their job. I'm not going to mistrust the Sunday school teacher and go and start criticizing. I don't like how you do the snack on your wall building. <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like how you paint the colors on your wall. I don't like the temperature on your wall building sanctuary. <laughs> I better stop. The <laughs> we we got to trust each other. And stop criticizing. You don't, you don't see it anywhere. You don't see it anywhere in Nehemiah that people had conflict amongst each other, amongst the wall builders. You don't see a single word about it. And here's probably why. This is an assumption, so take it or leave it. Which the real reason is probably because when you're slaving away and you're, and you're, you're committed to building your wall and, and you're giving your energy and your sacrifice and your blood, sweat, and tears, you don't criticize other people because you know what that feels like to be criticized on the work that nobody else did, Right? When everyone's got a place, when everyone's putting in their effort, when everyone's given to the kingdom, they don't start criticizing each other. Praise God. Another last thought about the wall. Got to move on from the wall. The last thought about the wall is this. Eventually, two people's walls got to meet. Eventually, the walls got to come together. Well, who lays the last brick? Who lays the brick that puts it together? And it's easy sometimes to have the attitude of, you know, that's not my ministry. Why do I got to lay the brick? Why can't they? 
Why do I got to take the one extra step? Why, why do I got to go the one extra brick length? In other words, when, when somebody says, hey, could, we really need a, a, we need a, a praise singer. Can you, can you just show up to practice a few times a month and, and can you worship? Well, it's not my ministry. Just lay a brick, right? Just, you know, the, the kingdom of God needs it. My church needs it. My family needs it. You know, can you teach a Sunday school class? Well, that's not my calling. Can you just lay a brick, right? Can you, can you just give to the kingdom? Can you sacrifice? Trust each other. There's no place. There's no place for competition in the kingdom of God. I've, I've listened to evangelists talk about this. It's, it's a problem, apparently. And even in the apostolic movement, there's this spirit of competition and well, I, you know, selfish ambition in this rat race, so to speak. There is no place for that in the church. Acts chapter 6. Again, I won't read the whole thing. In Acts chapter 6, the story of Stephen, there's, there's this threat of disunity. And, and what's happening is the Greek widows are not being taken care of, right? The church is supposed to take care of the people that are in need. Amen? The, the Greek widows are not being taken care of, and my apostolic footnotes explain that. They don't really know why. Perhaps there was a, the language difference made it difficult to understand or there was, there was a miscommunication, but they're not being taken care of like the Hebrew widows. Well, remember, this, this is new, right? The people, the, the Gentiles and the Jews going to church together, this was never been done before. They never would associate with each other. Peter was afraid to go to Cornelius' house, okay? And, and now we have this situation where there's, there's a potential rift about to happen, there's, a, there's, there's this disunity that could, have, that could happen at any moment and erupt. And it's so important to the 12 apostles. It's so critical to maintain unity. They stop everything they're doing and, and they go and create this, this team, right? A committee, if you will, with Stephen at the head of it. And they say, you 12, we're going to create a 12 apostles to take care of these widows and make sure that they're provided for and they're given the sustenance they need. Can you imagine being Stephen and, and how easy it is for that offense to settle in? Well, it must be nice to be one of the apostles. It must be nice to go preach in all the world and further the gospel and be in the spotlight and, and be the evangelist and get all the attention. Well, I stay here and feed the poor and give to the widows. It, it'd be easy to get a little upset about why is my responsibility so insignificant? Why is my calling so small. That's not what Stephen did. He decided he was going to let the Holy Ghost anoint him right in the place that God positioned him. In Acts 6 and 7 through 8, it says, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. He could have been offended. He could have been offended. He didn't get to go preach and evangelize all the world, but because he did what God called him to do, and he did it with anointing, and he did it in the, under the unction of the Holy Ghost, it furthered the word of God. The word, they just had a regular old revival right in Jerusalem. They just, they just had an outpouring of the Holy Ghost and people kept coming in droves and they kept furthering the word. And, and that freed up the apostles to go spread the gospel to the entire world. The word of God was furthered because he said, I'm not going to get competitive. I'm not going to get selfish in my ambition. I'm going to do what God calls me to do. 
and what my spiritual authority asked me to do, and with a good spirit. Back to Nehemiah. Back to the wall. Their enemies mock them. If you read the story, they go and rebuild the wall with the materials that were left from the destruction of the wall. They go, it literally says they go to the, the, the heaps of rubble, the, the stones and the bricks that were burned and charred and weakened, and they start rebuilding with the materials they have. The enemy comes before them and they mock them and they say, apparently it was a clever joke at the time, they say a little fox could walk across your wall and knock it right over. Your wall is weak. But what, what the enemy doesn't understand, it's not the wall that makes their stronghold strong. It wasn't the wall. See, what happened was when the enemy started coming after them and started coming around, they stood guard for each other. Nehemiah commanded that all night long. My brothers are going to watch over the, the kingdom. My brothers are going to stand on the wall and they're going to set a watch and set a guard to protect their brothers that are sleeping inside. And, and then in the morning time, then they'll switch off. And the next night, you'll set a watch and you'll watch my back while I rest. And while they worked, they carried a weapon and they worked, and I, I picture it back to back. I'm going to build, and you build over there, and you watch my back, and I'll watch your back. But they set a guard for each other and decided, we're not going to let the enemy get in here. And one more thing he did. Because of the threat of the enemy, he said, no, nobody go home. They had homes outside the walls of the city. Everyone just stay in Jerusalem. Everyone just stay in the wall, because that's where there's safety. Because it's a safe place where the enemy can't get in. Because as long as my brother is standing on the wall, as long as the family of God is protecting each other, the enemy cannot penetrate it. Praise God. Praise God. Got to move. I have a, a vivid memory, and I'm, I'm wrapping up, but I have, a, I have a vivid memory that's partially vivid and partially not. <laughs> um, I, I would have been probably 14 or 15 years old, so bear with me, it's 12, 13 years ago. Um, I, as a teenager, I don't know, I, had, I just got, I would get so angry sometimes and Glad Sam's here and Matthew, they can attest to this, but I would, I would get so mad sometimes and my siblings, if they did the littlest things, right, they'd mess something up or take some of my stuff or wear my clothes or, you know, look at me the wrong way, right? <laughs> Insignificant, right? And I would get so mad. I had this anger in me that was just troubling. That was, I remember one time, I don't even remember who it was, I told you it's not all vivid, I don't remember which one it was, but I was just yelling and hollering at him and pushing him and just, just mad beyond belief. Mad so much that I'm embarrassed to say it. And I'll never forget my, my dad comes up and, or comes down the stairs. This is up in Reedsburg. He comes down the stairs and he said, he, I never forget. This is the part I'll never forget. So why are you always attacking your family? We're all that we have. We're all that we have. Never forgot that. And I'm looking at the family of God 
And I'm telling you, we are all that we have. And more so than that, we are all the world has. We are the only Jesus some people will ever see. We are all that they have. Who's going to reach this world? Who's, who's going to reach out to people? Who's going to love their neighbor? But before you can ever love your neighbor, you've got to love your brother. So there's a safe place. So, so there's a wall of brothers and sisters surrounding the city that they can go to. We're all we have. Let's stand tonight. One, one more story. Not a story, a, an act of nature. There's an animal that's particularly fascinating and provides us the perfect example of how to be Christian people. The musk oxen. Some of you might have heard this before. It's an animal that's very limited, I think, in nature. It really only lives in the Arctic Circle. You can hunt them, because I saw it on Steve Rinella. But the musk oxen, they only live in herds at any given time from 8 to 24. They only live in these small herds. And they have conflict. They have disagreements. They butt each other like horned animals do and they fight for territory and they push each other off the grazing ground and they got conflicts and issues that arise. But when they come face to face with predators, there's, there's a unique behavior that they take on. These musk oxen that don't have sharp teeth, they don't, they don't have huge claws, they're big buffaloes really. They're, they're hideous if you ever look it up. They don't run. Like you see in all these movies and National Geographic, they just sprint and run off a cliff and, you know, they do something completely different. When the predators come before them, instinctively, behaviorally, they just get into a circle. All their backs to each other. And what's amazing is all the young and the weak go in the middle and they just stand guard for each other. And when we talk about the young, we're not talking about the calves in this case, we're talking about our children, but we're talking about who, who's brand new into knowing Jesus. Right? Who, who, who has just got filled with the Holy Ghost for the first time, has just felt that presence of God like nothing else for the first time. And when the enemy comes in, they can't penetrate as long as those musk oxen stand side by side. And you might, you might not like the musk oxen next to you. You might, you know, I just really don't care for how you said that. I really don't care for what you said about my family. I don't care for what you did. I don't think they have this dialogue, but you get what I'm saying, right? But it doesn't matter when the enemy comes. It doesn't matter because they're, they're standing side by side with the, with the young in the middle and the weak in the middle. Not just the young, the weak. You ever fall down before God? You ever stumble and been in a place of weakness? Been there, right? And you protect them. You go to those people. And you, you exhort them and you support them and you love them where they are and you forgive them. That's what, that's what standing guard is in the church. Somebody offends you, there's just nothing that's worth coming between us. There's just nothing. people are struggling and they're weak there's people that have been called people that have a purpose 
beyond what they ever thought they, they would have. I told this to our group a few, few weeks ago. People in this church that are called and you feel like you haven't heard from God in a long time, you're still called. You may feel weak, but you're still called. And you're in the middle. We're all we have. Standing side by side, we're all we have. Love people where they are. Call people that are struggling. Take the time to care. Make things right. Forgive people. Light up like the musk oxen because we're all that we have. The world needs a fortress they can run to. They, they need a safe place to go, but how can they see it if we can't love one another? And I'm not, as communion approaches in just a few days, sometimes we have this idea to, well, let's make things right. You know, right now at altar call. <laughs> I'm not asking us for us to do that at the altar call tonight because I don't think it's the big thing. It's not these blow-ups that come between the people of God. It's these little offenses that fester. It's these little, these little hurts that just grow and grow and grow. And what I'm calling for the church to do is let's come to the altar tonight and let's find it in our hearts to forgive people. And if you got to make it right with somebody, go ahead and do that. But, but if you just got to say hi to them in the hallway again, if you just got to tell them, I love you, there's nothing, there's nothing there. There's no odd. It's just, you looked at me the wrong way. And then I, I felt like there was a problem. But I just got to look at you. And if I got to stare you down and give you a hug, I will. And if, if I got to run up to you at Walmart, I'm going to do it right. But I'm going to love my brothers and my sisters. And I'm just going to let forgiveness come in my heart tonight. Can we, can we just do that? Let, the altar is open. Let's come and ask God to just fill our hearts with the forgiveness. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.